Thank you, Ben, for sharing and for going and for encouraging us just by your example. Together, uh, the, really the most important aspect of our time together is we're meeting with the Lord himself, uh, and accordingly we spend time in his word. And we are in a series, uh, just a mini-series, a four-part series on the kingdom of God. This is the third message in the series on the not-yet kingdom, the, the aspect of the kingdom being not yet. I don't know if you guys have heard of the author Jules Verne. Anyone here like Jules Verne or know about Jules Verne? Uh, he wrote a number of classics, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, and a number of other classic books. Uh, his books are full of amazing journeys and adventures, and they feature fantastical things like electric submarines, electronic media, rocket ships, light solar energy, um, tasers, video conferencing. Pretty amazing stuff, right? Well, you might not think so, but he wrote about these things 150 years ago before any of these things existed. Um, all that was there at the time was the basic science behind them, but they were pure fiction in his day. He anticipated their eventual reality based on a, a good guess of what could happen if we harness the truths of science. The science was there more or less, but the technology wasn't there yet. He lived in this what we could call an already and not yet world of science. But his dreams all pretty much became reality. Well, why say that? Well, we similarly live in the already not yet world of the kingdom of God. The truths, the realities are in place already, but the application, the full fruition of those realities has not come about yet. We await the fullness of these truths. And they will happen. They will become a reality. And they will be far more fantastical and glorious than anything Jules Verne ever could have imagined. What I want to do today is to take a look at this reality that the kingdom has come, but it's not yet. That we live in this time between the already and the not yet. So let's pray. And then we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it guides us in these truths. We thank You, Lord, that through Your Word we, we can understand the kingdom. We can understand what it is and where it is as we've looked. We can understand the wonderfully important truth that, has, that it has already come. But also, Lord, through Your Word we can understand that it's not yet. It's not yet in its fullness. And Lord, um, we need to understand this truth so that we can live in You and, and make the most of our time. So I pray You'd help me to explain these things, to teach them, and to proclaim the truth, uh, the truths that You want us to grasp so that we can live and walk with You in these realities. We thank You, Lord. Again, Your Word's adequate. And Holy Spirit, You're in us. And You're with us. Come and dwell with us. Have Your way. Teach us. Lead us. And use us. As we hear from you and go from this place today, we ask in Christ's name, amen. What I want to do is to take you through the scriptures and to illustrate 
this truth that we live by the truth that the kingdom's already and not yet. I want to do that by looking at the use of the word age in the Bible. Uh, it's based on a Hebrew and Greek word uh, from which we get the word uh, eon. And the word that is used, uh, we, we won't get into the, the, the Hebrew and Greek of this, but the word that's used uh, describes a time, a long time, a span of time, a period of history. But the word is more than chronology. It describes the reality of that particular time when it says age. And we use age this way, right? We speak of the Middle Ages or the age of the Roman Empire. Um, we use that to describe kind of epics of history. And the Bible uses age that way as well. So what I want to talk about is how the Bible speaks of the ages. The Bible speaks of two ages. There's this age and the age to come. And so I want to talk about that, basically this age, the age to come, and then I want to talk about the third point, about these two ages together. So let's take a look at some scriptures. Jesus would have understood, of course, this reality of the ages, this age and the age to come. And so if you look through his sayings, you'll see him using this term. So Matthew 24, 3, um, it's actually his disciples here. Jesus has told them about the temple being torn down and totally dismantled. And they are good Jews. They understand their Bibles. They understand this idea of, of these ages and what's going on. That They've read places like Daniel and Isaiah, so they understand this. And so it says in this passage, Matthew 24, 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Elsewhere in Luke 20, Jesus uses the same sort of term. He's teaching about marriage in the new age, that's in the age to come. The, the Sadducees are trying to trick and trap him. This is near the end of his ministry as they're, they're laying traps for him and they ask him about someone who's been married multiple times. You know, who will they be married to in the, in the age to come? And so this uh, dialogue appears in Luke 20. It says, And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they were equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now there's a lot of truths in here we're not going to get into today, worthy of study of course. But I just want to highlight his use of these terms, the sons of this age and that age, the age to come. Jesus is teaching about these truths, that there are these ages. There's this age and the age to come. He uses this elsewhere in Luke 16 as he's teaching about being shrewd as, as believers, as followers. And in Luke 16, he tells the, in that section tells the parable of the dishonest manager and then comments this way. He says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world, it says in the ESV, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. But if you look up the original word for world, that's translated world, and this happens uh, throughout the ESV and other translations, it's literally age. And not that using world is a wrong translation, but it's really a translation of the meaning versus the particular word. Literally, the word is age. For the sons of this age are more, more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
So Jesus is characterizing the sons of this age, those who belong to this age, uh, in contrast to the sons of light, those that are believers. So we can infer from that and elsewhere that, that the connotation of this age is not a positive one. And that, is, of course, is prevalent in Scripture, that this age is, is not characterized in a positive way in, in, in speaking of it. It's, it's spoken of as an age of ungodliness, an age of fallenness, an age of rebellion. And so Jesus teaches elsewhere in Matthew 13, where he's speaking, uh, this is his parable of the, of the seed being thrown on the different soils. I don't know if you remember that, if you read it before. And it's a parable to illustrate a truth of the seed of the Word of God going out into different people's lives and produces different results. And in that context, he says uh, in verse 22 of chapter 13, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the Word, but the cares of this of the world, it says in the ESV, but it's actually cares of the age and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. So the cares of the age of the world as it's translated this age, cares of this age is the implication there. And that in this age, there are these cares that we have because we live apart from God. We, we are seeking food, clothing, shelter, fortune, fame, success, all these things without God. They are the cares of this age. They characterize this age. And what can happen is the seed can be sown and those that are burdened by the cares of this age instead of trusting in the Lord are result in not being fruitful. It's interesting, actually, there's more that we see in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaks of this age, and, uh, and he says, he's speaking of the gospel going forth in this age, and he says in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, or world in the ESV, but it is age literally, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Paul teaches us, Jesus teaches us that there is this age that we live in and that this age is characterized by ungodliness. That this age is dominated by the, the prince of the power of the air as it says in Ephesians by Satan, the God of this age. He holds sway in some significant way over this age. And as a result, there's darkness, there's blindness. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. This wonderful section of Scripture speaks of our former manner of life as those who live under this age. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the, the course of this world, or the age of this world, Literally following the age of this world, following the things that characterize this age and this, this world as we know it, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we learn about this age. We learn about this age that is fallen, this age that is ruled in some significant way by Satan, this, this age that is broken, this age that is characterized by separation from God. That's this age in Scripture. And we live in this age. It's important to recognize that, that we live in this age that is characterized in these ways. Now, 
you've been learning that the kingdom has already come. So, right, there's some qualifiers here, some things we need to understand. And I will talk about that a little bit. But I, I want you for now to understand this reality that we live in this age that is characterized by brokenness, by sin, by evil, by the enemy. It's around us. It's our natural state we're born into. And apart from the rescue of God in Christ by the Spirit from the, the Father's sovereign grace, we would be subject to these things as well. This age is broken. This age is dark. This age is fallen. That's really important to understand. Understanding all the other caveats we'll get to, it's important to understand that this age is broken. Have you ever, um, ever been really disappointed by a vacation destination that wasn't what you thought it would be? Have you ever had that experience in life? And I actually looked it up and there are a list of the most likely places to disappoint, but I have my own story. When I was a kid, we traveled to Ireland, and Ireland is beautiful. It was a time full of just seeing gorgeous places there, great memories as a family. I have been back since then as well. But there was one place we went to that was a big disappointment. It was this place that was supposed to be gorgeous, like so much of Ireland. It was a, a a valley, a gap um, between two mountain ranges in County Kerry. County Kerry is just a fantastically beautiful county in Ireland. That's uh, where my family is from. Um, and this area it was called, uh, is called the Gap of Dunlow. And so we made the journey there, um, anticipating just another glorious venue and enjoying the day. But everywhere we went and every place we set our foot in the Gap of Dunlow, there was horse manure piled everywhere. We didn't know this, but apparently what you were supposed to do to see the Gap of Dunlow was to ride a horse or take a buggy. But I guess we were doing the inexpensive way with, with a family of six, and so we tried walking in the Gap of Dunlow, which you couldn't do without stepping in the horse manure. Um, so we were really disappointed in the Gap of Dunlow, and actually our family named the place something else uh, instead of the Gap of Dunlow that rhymes with Gap and describes what it was full of. <laughs> that was my disappointing vacation destination. Why do I tell that story? Well, guys, get used to disappointment in this world. This world has fallen. It's broken. And yes, God is working redemption. And it is wonderful to see and experience, and be part of extending. But this world as is, is now is broken. We live in a place that will disappoint. There is brokenness. There is sin. There is evil. It's around us, and it's in us. Even if we are redeemed, we still live in fallen bodies. We are fallen humanity. Get used to disappointment. Get used to seeing things not be quite what you would hope they would be, or quite what you want them to be, or even as they ought to be. That is one of the main messages, by the way, of the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be studying that starting at the end of the month. It's a helpful book alongside all the other books just to remind us that this world is full of vanity, full of things that don't make sense and just aren't as they ought to be. Get used to disappointment. Don't set your hope 
on finding your glorious vacation destination here. You won't. It will never measure up. As good as it might get even as the gospel goes forward and as the kingdom of God impacts our world, it will never measure up to what it ought to be. We need to understand that we live in this age. We live in the not yet. But there's more in Scripture. There's another age in Scripture that's spoken of as well. And this age that is to come will far exceed our wildest dreams and expectations. We're going to speak about it more next week as we finish this mini-series on the kingdom to come. But I just want to briefly talk about it, that we would see that there is this age and there is the age to come. And we have seen it already, of course. We saw it the other week uh, when we were looking at Matthew 12 as Jesus is speaking about the kingdom. He's uh, worked in power to bring healing and deliverance to a a man. And the the Pharisees are questioning him about it, saying, you know, it's from the prince prince of demons that you do this. And so Jesus is uh, correcting them and teaching them on this. And and he says, uh, in that context, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Then says this, either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus is presenting two ages. There's this age, there's the age to come. We saw earlier in Luke 20, he spoke of those who, uh, the sons of this age get married, but in that age, there won't be marriage. It'll be the fulfillment of what marriage points to, ultimately. Mark chapter 10, he speaks about mission in this age, and he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, actually I don't know if time is age there, but might be, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there's this age, there's the age to come. Of course, Mark 10, he's saying, as you invest in the gospel in this age, there's a reward in this age, but also in the age to come, life that is full and eternal. Ephesians 1, Jesus is presented here as the one who's been raised from the dead. It says in verse 20, uh, speaking of Christ, and Paul's wanting the Ephesians to understand what they have in Christ. And it says in verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So we've looked at that previously. But Christ is exalted and we have, uh, Christ is our Savior. We belong to Him. We are united in Christ. He's been raised from the dead. He's been exalted to rule over all things for the sake of the church. That's us. And He has a name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It's above every other name. In this age and the one to come. So Christ is ruling over this age and over the one to come. There are these two ages. In Scripture. That age, this age, and and the one to come. This age and the one to come. These two ages. And this one to come is going to be glorious. We're going to speak about it more next week. There will be no more death, no more sin. 
No more sin around us or in us. No more decay. No more frustration. No more brokenness. No more conflict. No more sickness. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more untruths or half-truths. Only perfect glory and fulfillment. It will be beyond our wildest imaginations. It will be far better than any vacation dream paradise here. I can't wait. Ten years ago in March, my, my dad died ten years ago. and He was in Naples vacation at the time, and so I went down to be with him in his last week or two. And uh, it, was, it was a hard time. My dad professed faith in Christ. And so I had hope, and I just remember walking around the hospital out there in downtown Naples and down towards the shore, and it was just so beautiful. And I felt the Lord just remind me through that. Your dad's going to a place that exceeds the beauty that you see here. And that's not even the fullness of it. He's in heaven right now with the Lord. He does see beauty and glory in the Lord, but it's going to be even fuller as Christ returns and and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we set our hope. That's the ultimate vacation destination, to use that illustration. Well, so we have these two ages. We have this age, we have the age to come, And finally, I want to talk about the the combination of these two. The reality that we as Christians are part of the kingdom of God right now, and we live in really what is the overlap of the two ages. The age of fallen humanity and the age of resurrection life overlap right now. Since Christ was raised from the dead, until He returns, there's an overlap of the two ages, and we live in that. And this reality is so important to get, and it's where these two truths meet and hold us in tension that we achieve wisdom as believers. We live in the overlap of these two ages. And now, it wasn't anticipated by the Old Testament people of God. It was there in the Old Testament. As they read their Scriptures, there was much about the promise of the age to come. And there was much about the age that we're in. But the the inference for them was, well, it's going to be this radical change. There'll be this age, and then boom, the age to come. That's why the disciples say, as Jesus has, when he's raised right there with him, they say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the age to come? I mean, you're here. You're, it's you, resurrected Jesus, walking with us in all your glory. You've overcome sin and death. Let's get going with this new age thing, the age to come now. And Jesus disrupts their paradigm at that point, saying, it's not for us to know the times or seasons that's set by the Father. Your job right now is to be my witnesses throughout the whole world. To plant churches, to be in this overlap of the ages where you're bringing resurrection life to places that are dark and dead. There's a mission now to reach all peoples in this overlap of the ages. Let's take a look at a few verses to establish this. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is an important passage on the resurrection of Christ. Let's just take a look at it, verses 20 to 28, and learn some things and apply some things from it. Paul is teaching on the resurrection. And and what I'm doing here, just so I can say it explicitly, I'm connecting the resurrection to the age to come. There's the age of death. There's the age of life. There's the age of spiritual death. There's the age of eternal spiritual life and life in every way. There's the resurrection age. There's the dead age. That's ways to look at this. 
And so as we read 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul talks about the resurrection in verse 20, just keep that in mind. So he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This passage helps us understand the overlap of the ages. We have the first man, Adam. In Adam, all die. Through Adam's sin, humanity is plunged into spiritual death. But then the second Adam comes in his faithfulness, is his righteous life offered up on the cross. He dies for our sins. He dies for the sins of Adam and all those who follow after Adam who would put their trust in him. He pays for their sins on the cross. He pays that penalty in full. He reconciles us to our holy just God who, who must hold those sins against us in his goodness. He dies for us, sheds his blood, perishes on the cross in our place, but also earns the full righteousness through his worthy life. And through faith in him, there's this glorious exchange. His sin, is, our sin is put on him. His glory is imputed to us. It's credited to us. His righteousness. He comes as the second Adam, dies in our place, overcomes sin and death, is raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He's the second Adam, the ultimate human being. God in the flesh. And through Him, all who trust in Him are made alive. And the implication isn't just the day of salvation when you trust in Him. It's the fullness of life. It's the resurrected life. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new humanity living in the new heavens and the new earth that He accomplished in His death and resurrection. So He's the transition point from the old age to the new age. But there's something going on here that Paul gets into. He's contrasting these two ages. There's the age of Adam and death. There's the age of Christ and life here. But there's an order here. There's an order to what's going on. But each in his own order, he says in verse 23. Christ, the first fruits. Christ is the first fruit. And the first fruits are an offering given. The Jewish people would have understood this. When they were called to worship the Lord with their tithes and offerings. And they were agricultural. So what you would do is at the beginning of the harvest, the very first fruit that you would harvest, you would gather together and you would bring it to the temple and you would offer it in worship. And there, it was a costly sacrifice because you had been waiting around quite a while and working really hard for that harvest. And the first part of it, the first 10% or so, you would take and bring and offer that. You didn't know whether the rest was going to come. So it was an offering of worship, but an offering of hope as well. Knowing, Lord, just as you provided this first part, I know you're going to provide the rest. You're my provider. My hope is in you. And Jesus is called the first fruits because he is the first human who's resurrected. And he's an offering, of course, to the Father on our behalf. And he's a guarantee of the rest of the harvest. A massive harvest of countless renewed, resurrected people. Forgiven. Freed. 
transformed into the glory of Christ. Christ is the first fruit of this. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. So, so it is until He returns that we experience this resurrection. And then it says, then comes the end when He turns it over to the Father. And then Paul says what's going on. He describes what's going on. He must reign until He's put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what happens when He returns. Judges all. New heavens and new earth. But He's reigning now in this overlap period. Putting enemies under His feet. Bringing resurrection life where there's death. Now, it says when He returns is when the rest are raised. When they are resurrected. Is there any aspect of this resurrected life though that precedes that time? Does it only happen then when He returns? Well, let's check out some verses. I'll tell you up front, no. The fullness comes when He returns. That's when we get resurrected bodies in a renewed heaven and earth. But resurrected life is already happening right now. He is bringing resurrected life all over the world. He's brought it to us. So let's take a look at some Scriptures so we can see that. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense language. When you believed, this is what happened. You got life. You were raised up with Him. You are with Him as He reigns in some significant way. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised. Therefore, we are to live in this reality of our resurrection life. Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So when Jesus in John 5.24 teaches about eternal life, we're to understand this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's resurrection life. That's going from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's going from being dead to being born again, being regenerate. Resurrection life. That's the only way you become a Christian. It's by receiving that resurrection life. He awakens you. Opens your eyes. You see and you believe. That's resurrection life. That's the life of Christ in you. The resurrected Christ in you by the power of the Spirit. And so, we're told to live this way. We're to live as resurrected ones. Now, our bodies are not resurrected. We still have a sinful nature. But there's a new reality for a believer. The resurrected life of Christ in us is in us. We have been raised from the dead spiritually. He's in us. The resurrection's happening. We live in this overlap as resurrected people walking the earth among dead people, spiritually dead people, for the sake of witnessing to that resurrected life. Proclaiming the truth that they might receive it and demonstrating what it looks like. So Romans 12 
speaks to us about living this new life. Note, in light of what we've been talking about, what it says here. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. That word there is age. Again, do not be conformed to this age. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In light of your new life, your resurrected life in Christ, in light of what He's done for you, dying for your sins, paying the penalty, in light of the fact that you are free and beloved, do not conform to this age, but live out the reality of your new life in Him. This aspect of who you are that's part of the age to come. Turn away from darkness and death. Turn away from half-truths half and idolatry and the emptiness of this age. Turn away from it and fully embrace all that the good news of Christ means. The truth, capital T, truth. And so discern, have your mindset changed, embrace and follow what is truly good what is truly pleasing, what is truly perfect, fully true, as we say in the worldview, what is true, good, and beautiful, or true, good, and, and glorious. Don't be conformed to this age anymore. Live in the reality of the age to come because you have it now. One more verse before we start to tie things up and close. That illustrates this. I, I just want you to hear this verse. It's in a negative context. It's in a sad context in Hebrews 6. What's going on in the context is the author of Hebrews is appealing to people who are ready to give up all this that they have, all this new life that they have, because it's tough, because they live in the overlap. And to be part of the age to come, to have this resurrected life in you means you're going to be different than the world. And you're going to be opposed and even in your own self, you're going to have struggles. You're not going to do what you want because part of you is, I love Jesus. I want to follow Him and, and believe and do great things. And part of you is like, no, I want to be selfish and I want to do my own thing and I want to be my own God. And so you yourself are going to struggle. You're going to be in a world that will be opposed to you as well. And you might even be persecuted. That's what's happening to the audience of Hebrews. They're being persecuted now. And it's hard. They're suffering. And the author of Hebrews wants them to recognize what they'll be giving up should they turn away. And then the reality that if they turn away truly they, and, and they set their hearts to live in that place, they don't have the ability necessarily to come back. And so in that context, that sad context, the author of Hebrews teaches us something about this new life that they, these people are going to be giving up or any who turn away and, and stay away. It says in Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. So it's describing what it is to belong to Him. And all that we have as part of that, right? So uh, they've been enlightened. Our eyes are open. We see the light comes on, and we start to see things as they really are tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the gift of the Spirit and new life. And they've tasted of the goodness that's to come. They have a taste of the new heavens and the new earth already. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. God Himself is present in them. They've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. 
The Word of God that's living and active, that, that revives us and speaks to us and meets us keeps us and strengthens us and, and empowers us to, to bless others. This wonderful experience of, of having this book come alive and meet us in the deepest places and empower us to walk and serve. And then he says, and the powers of the age to come. The things that are part of the age to come, you've already experienced these in some degree. You've experienced this resurrected life. You've experienced the the very power of God that that in the new creation will will reverberate through everything in unhindered glory. You've already experienced that now. New life, this new ability to say no to sin and yes to to the Lord. These new desires in you that, that even though you struggle and even though you fail, even though you feel like sometimes you're going backwards, you will go forwards because He is in you. Creating in you. He's written the law of God on your heart. He's in you. There's a a love for Him that will sustain you. That's that's your hope actually is His work in you. That's a powerful thing from Him. It's part of the age to come. This ability to, to identify and reject and repent of sin and to pursue faith and love and obedience. To love others. To forgive those who persecute you. Forgive those who misunderstand you. Forgive those who hurt you. Forgive even those who are your enemies. It's part of the power of the age to come. To understand the mysteries of God. To remain faithful. Even to the point of shedding blood. That's powerful. That's the powers. Those are the powers of the age to come. And we get to live in them now. We get to live really what is a superhuman life because of Jesus, because of this resurrected life in us. The church is the most miraculous place in the world. It's full of resurrection life. I've been very inspired uh, as we've been learning about many important missionaries in history as we've gone through our class. Last week we studied the life of John Patton. John Patton was a Scottish missionary who went to the South Pacific. Um, he went to islanders there in the mid-1800s, about 1860 or so. And he was used to win many to Christ. The peoples of those particular islands, now called the Kingdom of Vanuatu, were fierce, treacherous, and they were cannibals. They had already killed and eaten previous missionaries. But John, because he had resurrection life in him, even though he was weak and unable himself, because of the resurrection life of Christ, he went and he took his wife. Before he left, many sought to dissuade him. One man, Mr. Dixon, an elder in the church, challenged the wisdom of his decision. Let me share with you the dialogue. I think we have it to project. Mr. Dixon said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. 
And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's resurrection power. That's the power of the age to come. And I want to be like John Patton. When we understand our resurrection life, it gives us boldness and peace to trust God and to serve Him even in the face of terrible things of this age. Brothers and sisters, we live in this time that's already and not yet. That's what this time period we live in is about. The Lord's working through it. Let me conclude in helping us think through this. How to apply it. What do we do with holding these things? And what I would say is it brings us wisdom to understand we live in the already, the not yet. We live in this age and in the age to come. We live in the overlap. And both these things need to be understood together because if we say the kingdom's already without realizing it's not yet, we're in for trouble. We're living what is an illusion, a triumphalist illusion. We'll make lots of mistakes. We'll, we'll try to set up the fullness of the kingdom now. We'll be very frustrated with those that don't get with the program. We'll be very frustrated with ourselves. We'll be forced to be hypocrites, to hide the fact that it's not yet and we're not yet. We'll fall into errors like others have created, like utopian societies that were formed, thinking that if they could just get the formula right, just get the formula right, you can make it the age to come now. And if you study those groups, they, pretty much all of them, went off the rails. Whether or not you go and form a utopian society, you'll be trying to form your utopian society in your own heart or in the, the local church, and you will have trouble with others who don't get with the program. Because they won't. And you won't either. If we say the kingdom is already not yet, that's, we neglect that it's not yet, that's what happens. If we say the kingdom is not yet without saying it's already, we're in for trouble as well. Because we'll try to retreat from the evil of this world. We'll think, oh no, it's not yet. It's terrible. It's dark. It's this age. There's no already. And so, let's get out of here. Let's retreat. Let's form a bubble. But you'll never get away from that reality. But there, there is often in, the, in those groups that see things this way, they, they will isolate themselves. They'll isolate themselves from the world. They'll even isolate themselves from good things in creation. And, and as a result, they'll miss out on the many blessings and good things the Lord has as He rules over this age and as He brings the age to come into our lives. They'll likely reject material things that are meant for good. They'll see the church in narrow and negative terms. Just it's playing a losing game, trying to survive until Jesus returns. They'll likely not engage the culture and life in the broader aspects of being human. Things like the arts, the outdoors, science, philosophy, and other cultural pursuits. Because it's, you know, why rearrange the chairs on, a, on the Titanic? It's going down. They'll think like that. And on a personal level, you're likely to treat others with suspicion, often assuming the worst motives of your fellow believers. Disinterested in engaging non-believers, apart perhaps from presenting a very reduced gospel to them that is about, yes, you can get your sins forgiven, but forget about doing anything else in this life to demonstrate the kingdom. That's what happens when you only get part of the already and the not yet. But we're called to hold these things together. Together, when we get it's already and not yet, We'll be hopeful for the depth and breadth of God's redemption, but not unrealistic about the limitations 
in this age. We'll assume the best motives of our brothers and sisters, but won't be surprised when we find something else. We'll engage the world actively, presenting the gospel, but also presenting a fully orbed Christian worldview that touches on every aspect of culture to show what it looks like when the age to come touches all of humanity. We'll live things out together as His people before the world as we witness in word and deed to the kingdom. But we will realize that it might not change anybody. Nevertheless, we're called to do it. And not only might not change anybody, but it might make them hate us. And we might get persecuted for doing it. And they might put us to death for it. We don't know what the world will do with our witness in word and deed. But we'll still do it because we are, it's who we are. We're part of the age to come in this age. We'll realize that the local church is God's plan A for the progress of the kingdom of God. So we'll invest in the life and mission of the local church, whether in its, its few essential activities or just the parts of the church that are just organic as we relate together in the life and mission God has for us, bringing the age to come to this age. By the way, our church's job is to make disciples, to equip you guys to live out these things in all the contexts of life. We will invest in the church in these ways, but we won't be disappointed when the people in the church fail us somehow or fall short of what they ought to be. Because we understand we are part of the age to come, but we're also in this age doing with people who are also part of the age to come and in this age. Therefore, they will fail us. So we won't be surprised, but neither will we give up hope. Do you see how holding these things together impacts really every aspect of life, every aspect of the Christian life? There's a lot at stake in how we understand the kingdom of God and understand these realities that we live in these two ages. And I trust that this series has helped you so far. That we together might be fruitful. Let me pray and then transition 